uh, turn to Genesis chapter 9. Before we begin, um, just a few notes. This, this is a hard passage. And um, we've been studying, if you're a visitor today, our summer series has been on the Ten Commandments. And uh, today we fall on the command, Thou shalt not murder. And I was asked yesterday on a phone call, you know, if we were going to talk about, uh, you know, that murder in the heart, the heart murder. And uh, I said, no, uh, actually, you know, murder in the heart, as Jesus presented it, wasn't to console someone who had committed an offense. Uh, when you look at, especially Matthew 5, 1 John, um, other places it talks about this, James uh, Jesus, when he spoke about adultery in the heart and murder in the heart, he was confronting people who were unbelievers, Pharisees who were self-righteous, who uh, did not think they needed uh, to, to check their heart. Jesus never used it in order to console someone. Well, because sometimes it's used today, for instance, that, uh, well, you know, you've committed adultery don't really worry, all of us have committed adultery in the heart. You've probably heard someone express something like that. Or if you have murdered, you know, we're all murderers, really don't worry. It it was never intended to console someone like that, but to confront people who would not acknowledge their heart would be capable of such things. So that's why when someone is on, for instance, the Green Mile or Death Row, uh, the, the guards would never go to them and say, well, don't worry, you murdered, you know, we're all just murderers at heart. No, in Exodus, in the command, thou shalt not murder, it's not talking about a heart condition or or any spiritual type of uh, murder. It's talking about murder. So that's where we're going to be today. Exodus chapter 20, Genesis chapter 9. This is an incredibly powerful passage. It's often referred to by many as the Noahic covenant, uh, the covenant that God made with Noah and his sons immediately after they left the ark, immediately after God destroyed the earth through a worldwide flood. If you were to continue reading past verse 7, this is the same chapter that contains the promise of the rainbow, and it's said to remain in effect for Noah, for his sons, and all successive generations. You You might remember that Noah's family were the only ones on the earth at this time, only eight of them, eight inhabitants total. And this categorically differs from the Abrahamic covenant as those promises were only given uh, to those descendants of Abraham, a portion of the earth. The Noahic covenant is given to all the earth. And And the first, by the way, to refer to civil government prior to the flood. Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. We'll discuss that in a few moments. But now, after the flood, after Noah leaves the ark, mankind is called to police and, and bring men to accountable, uh, accountability. This covenant has never been nullified, by the way. Let's begin reading in verse 1, Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Well, when it comes to this command, thou shalt not murder, uh, folks, this passage rings as loudly today as it did in the time of Noah. You know, prior to the flood, the earth was a murderous culture. Murderous culture. Civil government had not yet been established by God, therefore men dispensed revenge, each according to their own judgment. Vengeance such as this was exemplified in Genesis 4, verse 23, where a man named Lamech, 
You probably remember him. He bragged about allotting his own form of justice. He said to his wives, For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. That's what he declared. Lamech is boasting that my vengeance, it's going to be eleven times what God's vengeance is. Talk about a boastful thing to say. It was the Wild West on steroids before the flood. There was unbridled sexual immorality, unhinged debauchery of every kind, and, of course, murder. And in Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw saw that the wickedness of man uh, was great on the earth, and that the intent, every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Unregenerate man. For these reasons, God, yet through a worldwide flood, wiped the slate clean. He began again with Noah. Uh, This shows us how mankind, mankind left without some kind of restraint. Uh, How he goes astray and what he's capable of when they are depraved of mind. Uh, God started anew with Noah. Therefore, As they left the ark, one of the first commands given to Noah to be handed down to every uh, successive generation afterward is this. Thou shalt not murder. You shall not murder. You you didn't think that that command was first given to Moses on Mount Sinai, did you? The first time? You don't think he was the first one who had problems with murder? No, the, the act of murder didn't originate during the time of Moses. In fact, Immediately after the fall of man, in in Genesis chapter 3, the first physical act recorded of of, uh, sin, the physical sin, was Cain killing Abel. The first act, murder. So in Exodus chapter 20.13, God is merely restating what He had originally said to Cain. And what he later said to Noah when he speaks to Moses and Israel saying, Thou shalt not murder. You also notice that uh, this does not say, Thou shalt not kill. The New King James Bible corrected the erroneous language, at least in our day, of the King James that translated this word as kill. It's not the word kill. Both the Hebrew term in the Old Testament and the Greek word in the New Testament that Jesus uses is the word murder. Now, pacifists will sometimes cite the King James Version um, to suggest that Jesus taught that we are never allowed to kill anyone or anything, any creature for food or during war, self-defense, or any any condition whatsoever. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, These are people that are pushing for the alternative meat, folks. They don't want anything killed. Let's just eat tofu, let's eat grains, and go back to when everything was really good. Um, We can easily see Genesis chapter 9 with Noah, this covenant with Noah, as well as with Jesus who tells Peter in Acts 10 verse 13 that we are to take animals, kill, and eat. So the idea that we are never allowed to kill or take any life whatsoever, that's absolutely false. That is false. The biblical words meaning to kill uh, means to butcher an animal. That compared to what we see in, in Genesis 9, to murder means to slay a man. To man it's manslaughter. They're not even grammatically related. Animal rights activists, they, they do attempt to get a lot of mileage out of distorting very small portions of the Bible to elevate uh, animals to human status. Folks, that is sin. That is sin. And Christians are falling prey to that form of religion like dominoes. That's a problem. That is a problem. Do you recall last week when I stated we should stop using the word gay in combination with marriage because there is no such thing? Terminology that we repeat matters. It affects how we think, folks. With that said, this will be hard for some of you folks. It's hard for me to say. 
But we also need to stop referring to animals. I guess the common term would be pets. Though the Bible never uses that term for animals to describe pets. But we need to stop calling them our babies. Because using human terms to denote animals, it diminishes the value of that child who lives in the womb. Associating a human term with an animal. And animal activists have been purposefully um, employing this terminology for this purpose for decades. For decades. And, and Christians should now be intelligent enough to recognize what is happening in our culture if you look around. There's good reason, very good reason, the English language has existing terms for young animals puppy. Kitten, calf, fawn, lamb, chick. It's because they're not babies. And they, and they, don't, they don't reflect the image of God as babies do. They are also not our children. They are not our children. And we never become their mommies and their daddies. We don't. It diminishes the value of human life. And the adoration that is displayed towards animals today, the type of adoration that is displayed towards animals today, it's never seen in the Bible among believers. Never seen in the Bible among believers. And to bow in servitude to animals is prohibited in Scripture. Romans 1 verse 22, Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You know, professing to be wise they became fools. This is a verse that some kind, sometimes comes to mind when I see a person you know, fretting over what the, the most luxurious gift for their pet would be. Well, it leads them around on a leash and, and, and they follow along picking up refuse. Displaying unbridled affection for animals while actual babies are being slaughtered by the millions. Few willing to say anything to confront it. You know, Americans are adopting and rescuing animals as they murder children who are created in the image of God. That is what is going on. That is a fact. And God says of such people, In Romans 1 verse 20, they are without excuse, and the wrath of God is against them. They're without excuse. We we know better. We know better. Um, I will acknowledge pets are not prohibited in Scripture. Unless your life revolves around serving them rather than serving God and your fellow man. That is prohibited. You know, people talk to their pets rather than their neighbors today. Teach their children to do the same. We see it all the time. Uh, Animals aren't rational, folks. They're behavioral. But they're not rational animals who we can have a discussion with. Jude, Jude, by the way, describes them as unreasoning beasts. And for this reason, we give them direct commands. Sit, stay. We train them. We domesticate them. We, we harness them to a carriage to pull it down the road. We teach them, wonderful animals, we teach them to sniff out bombs in order to confront perpetrators. Uh, we, we do these things in order for them to serve us, not the other way around. Not the other way around. Above all things, we train kittens. We train them to go in the litter box. We train them. And I have Christian liberty to enjoy pets 
as long as I don't forget who the boss is. And so the pet doesn't forget who the boss is. And as long as it doesn't become the center of my affection rather than mankind and expressing my love towards them. You know, the, the Bible reminds us that it is our neighbors who are facing an eternity in hell, folks. While the Bible makes no reference whatsoever as to the destiny of pets, other than one, the bottom of our stomachs, animals. That's the only destiny that the Bible makes reference of with animals, is that we eat them, the ones that taste good. Folks, that's a fact. The world is upside down. Christians are never to worry about whether or not we're going to see our pets in heaven. We are concerned, we are to be concerned about whether or not we're going to see our neighbors in heaven. Whether we're going to see one another in heaven. That said, you're probably wondering how did we get off on this tangent. It's surely no accident, folks, that in the Noahic covenant, back to Genesis chapter 9, the temporal value of animals as food is established in a contradiction to the eternal value of man. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 9. God assures Noah, from day one, you're going to need to be able to keep these straight. The difference between animals and man. In verse 2, God tells him, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea. As your, uh, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Every moving animal is a potential food source. Some don't taste very good. This is the exact same declaration that Jesus repeated to Peter in Acts chapter 10 when he told him, Take up, Peter, kill and eat. Deep fry everything that you can catch. Do you wonder why God is so explicit there, uh, repeating himself about eating every kind of animal? No species shall be prohibited or singled out. No species. I think I know why. I think I know why. Because looking once again to Romans chapter 1, I think that God makes the adjustment to Noah's food source because prior to the flood, animals were being worshipped. Animals were being served. Animals were being elevated while people were being murdered. That's what was going on. You might ask, do I have any scriptural evidence of that? i got a whole book, book full, but I'll give you just a couple. Throughout Scripture, whenever man digresses from the knowledge of God or worship of the living God, he quickly defaults to elevating creatures. Revering creatures and their images. Psalm 106 verse 19 reminds just how quickly Israel fell into this. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. Can you imagine that? You know, how much time had passed at that point? From when they left Egypt to the, to the time they had a, a calf, an image of an ox that eats grass, to bow down to. A few weeks. Amazing, amazing. God said again in Deuteronomy 4.16, Do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure in the likeness of any animal that is on the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship and serve them. You know, scan human history. Man without God, man without a correct understanding of God, is drawn to worshiping 
beasts. You've got a whole country over there in India. This is the central focus of their whole theology is animals and the value of animals where in many parts they they won't kill any animal. They won't step on a mouse. That's what happens when you're void of the truth of the living God. Um, Romans 1.20 assures us that corrupt behavior of bowing down to birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures... It has been perpetually occurring, Romans says, since the creation of the world. Since the very beginning. Before God brought the flood, a large part of human corruption was admiring animals, elevating animals, while murdering men. Looks a lot like today. Looks a lot like today. Far too familiar. So when Noah stepped out of the ark, God made his covenant with him, deeming it essential to emphasize man shall not be murdered. Because why? Because we are created in the image of God. Well, God says, well, I'll say it. The only way to properly serve an animal ranges on a scale from medium rare to well done. That's a fact. That's what God is saying in effect. Everyone's tastes, they have preference. But, but vegetarianism as an ideology, nothing, I don't have any problem with vegetarianism, but as an ideology to save animals from slaughter, that's rebellion against God. That is rebellion against God. Instead, we're told to eat every type of animal, every part of animal, except for one. What is it? The blood. The blood. Why is that? You ever think about that? Why is that? You know, it's interesting how the Jerusalem Council, as they held that, you find that in Acts chapter 15, the Apostle James, who's pretty much marshalling the church at that time, suggests that this remains in effect for the church. He said, abstain from eating what is strangled and from blood. You know, Jews were we're used to butchering animals as we do today, bleeding out an animal. Yet strangling an animal would leave the blood in the animal. Follow me? I think Christians, you know, we should refrain from making too much out of this because Scripture doesn't make too much out of this. We only see this in Acts chapter 15. Some commentators suggest that this was only so that the new Christians in Antioch and the Greek believers at that time wouldn't offend a Jewish Christian. Uh, That's possible. That's a possible explanation. I personally believe James' focus of thought is all the way back to Noah. All the way back to Noah. And the the rationale that God gave to Noah is the life is in the blood. Then during the law, Deuteronomy 12, verse 23, the identical prohibition is given to Israel. Sometime later, saying, God saying to Israel, the life is in the blood. Then we find James' declaration in Acts chapter 15. Throughout Scripture, blood is symbolic of a creature's life. Symbolic of their life. If you possess its blood, you've got a hold on their life. You've got a handle on their life. You hold its life in your hands. There's something sacred about it. Again, New Testament doesn't make too much out of this. But Christians need to recognize there's life in the blood. We sang about it earlier. There's power. There's power in the blood. Because before trusting Christ, we were spiritually dead in our sins. Dead in our sins. We needed life. And spiritual life is granted through blood. That's how it's granted. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, According to the law, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Yet year by year, the high priest entered the holy place, but not with blood that was his own. See, the high priest would take the blood of an animal once a year on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God as an atonement, as a covering for sin. But the life that was in that animal's blood couldn't give us blood. Couldn't give, or couldn't give us life, excuse me. But God's eternal Son, His eternal Son, Jesus, 
He was born in the likeness of man. He was born through a virgin into the likeness of man. All the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. That he could, by his blood, bring us life. Uh, You can find all these references in Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10, where we are told of the one-time sacrifice of Christ for all sins. We now have confidence to enter the holy place. That is where God dwells. How? By the blood of Jesus. Because as our high priest, he gives us full access to the Father, Hebrews 9.12. Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. For he entered the holy place once for all, obtaining eternal redemption. We now can enter the presence of God. Christians enter the presence of God, the Father, through faith in his beloved Son, says John, uh, 1 John 1.7. Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's the only reason we have access to God at all, is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Um, Have you committed murder? It's a tender thing. With abortion the way it is going on today, likely some of us here have had a role in that at some point in our life. Have you committed murder? Folks, the life is in the blood. The forgiveness of sins is in Christ's blood. Um, Therefore, for some reason, it seems when it comes to handling blood, even that of an animal, Christians are to abstain. Be aware, maybe even beware, as it seems the actual blood is still not to be ingested as food. Uh, It's interesting, fascinating really in in our culture now, how America is fascinated with vampires. To consume blood. To consume that which gives life. I, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. The sacrifice of Christ is displayed and does display the infinite difference between the power of the blood of the Lamb, Christ, compared to that of the animals that had been sacrificed year after year. Man compared to beast. This is exactly the contrast that we see in Genesis 9. Beasts are to be indiscriminately consumed, while the life of every man, woman, and child is to be valued because they are created in the image of God. Meanwhile, anything that takes the life of man, its life is to be taken by man. This is given to deter people from taking uh, people's life, shedding blood quickly. In Genesis 9, verse 5, God tells Noah and every succeeding generation, Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. That's the reasoning. Whether it is death caused by a wild animal or by a man who commits murder, other men are to arise and come together and enforce upon that perpetrator capital punishment. Life for life. This usually doesn't become an an issue when, when when a person is mauled by an alligator or by a bear. Usually, we expect authorities to quickly track down that animal and eliminate it, right? You take that animal out. The problem comes when a murderer, convicted on demonstrable evidence, beyond the, the shadow of a doubt, who is not brought to account for the, for the evil that he or she committed. That's a problem. That is a problem. Um, I I realize I just took a giant leap from Noah to modern day, but when you trace human government from the earliest time, uh, from Noah until Moses until Jesus and the New Testament apostles, the penalty for for murder remains the same. Life for life. Uh, These elements, again, of the Noahic covenant have never been nullified. Nowhere in Scripture has this been nullified. It's the reason that the Apostle Paul tells Christians in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, 
be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Verse 5, it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now that's a New Testament explanation for the role of human government. It exists first to punish evil. Punish the evildoer. And it does so by bearing the sword. You know, throughout the history of the church, those who read Paul have always understood, except in modern day now, that the bearing of the sword has always referred to capital punishment. Capital punishment, life for life. Being confident that God is sovereign, number one, and in control of all human events, both Christ and his apostles subjected themselves to this standard, this very standard in force since Noah, and then reinforced in Romans chapter 13. When Christ was facing execution by Pilate, he said to Jesus in John 19, Pilate said to Jesus in John 19.10, Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus wasn't even being tried for murder. Paul was on trial for inciting violence with his testimony of the resurrection, witnessing to Christ and his response. Acts 25, 11. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things which is true uh, is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul didn't refuse to die at the hands of government. Rather, he said if he could be uh, if it could be proven that he committed anything worthy of death, he would not refuse to die. He would not protest. What he requested was that the facts would be discovered at trial. That's what he requested. Here's the point. When it comes to the penalty that God established for murder, Christians don't fear the government um, establishing and following through with capital punishment. We should actually fear the authorities who refuse to obey God and enforcing capital punishment. That's what we should fear. Why? Because Scripture says that Government is a minister of God for good, intended to make people afraid of doing evil. Because they know that it bears the sword. People are to be afraid because they know the government enforces with a sword. Fear comes when the government fails to swiftly punish evil with a sword. Folks, that's Chicago Southside. When the government fails to step in and establish um, capital punishment. And, and in place of that, man, well, he forms his own kind of revenge. They call it gang violence. What do they are? Modern-day Lamex. Saying, I'm going to establish my own uh, allotment of justice. Uh, folks, we have regressed a lot since the day of Noah. We've regressed a lot. Um, what's the problem? Nobody fears getting caught. Nobody fears getting caught anymore. Because even if they do, the death penalty isn't as enforced as it should be. It's not swift. And when the government acquiesces its primary role of punishing the evildoer, the lawbreaker, the fear of God is removed. you got people doing all kinds of things. Uh, Then who backfills that vacuum of authority that's missing? Guys like Lamech. Guys like Lamech. Um, They dispense vengeance unfairly. It's one of the reasons that large sections of cities all the way from Rio to Detroit, uh, there are places where the police just resist entering because they can't enforce anymore anyhow. And, And guys like Lamech are left behind to terrorize that community because government isn't enforcing, uh, the law. Um, Folks, terror comes when, when government gets out of the business of punishing the evildoer because that, that sword becomes dull. That sword that they bear becomes dull. 
Once it won't confront murder, it eventually fails to enforce anything at all. You know, it, it ends up becoming like one of those rubber swords that you find in the gift shop. That's what the government sword looks like today. Rubber. Nobody fears the sword, so they just ignore it. Because the government won't enforce the law anyhow. You know, if the justice system would just do two things, a fair, speedy trial, followed by a swift execution for convicted murderers, every type of armed robbery and violent crime would drop significantly. They'd be putting out vacancy signs on the prisons. If the government would actually do what God has commanded be done. Capital punishment is not murder. It is God's justice. A few closing notes. Talking about what murder is and what murder isn't. Am I fearful of wrongful convictions? I know that's going to be concern in some people's minds. Not when, on, not when it's on the basis of two or three witnesses. Because that is the threshold that God establishes in Numbers 35.30. Conviction, it's... It's never established on one witness. You have to have at least two or three witnesses, and then you get them in separate rooms, and you cross-examine them. And their stories aren't going to line up if there isn't truth. Cops are pros at this. They're going to be able to ask questions and say, your, your story doesn't line up with that other person. So I'm not concerned when there's a basis of two or three witnesses. God is concerned that we obey Him and trust Him. That's what he's concerned about. Will you obey what I say to do? And on the very rare occasion that there is a wrongful conviction, numbers in that are usually exaggerated, by the way. Um, Wrongful convictions as a proportion of our prison population, boy, they're, they're blown out of proportion and exploited by men who want to deter society from enforcing the law. That's what it is. I mean, you go into prison and talk to folks, if you've ever been in done prison ministry, everybody's innocent. Actually, most of them are not. Only on a very, very rare occasion is anyone innocent. But Scripture assures Christians, God is sovereign over the human heart. Sovereign. This is, a, this is why theology is really important. When you get down of whether God is in control or, or men are just down here kind of doing what they feel. Is God ultimately in control? We know from Scripture that God is sovereign over the human heart in salvation, in election, and in predestination. We know that. God also turns the judges and jurors' heart wherever He wishes. That is a fair application of Proverbs 21, verse 1, where it says that the... Uh, Uh, God turns the king's heart wherever he wishes. God can turn the juror's heart. He can turn Pharaoh's heart. He can turn the heart for whatever God feels is just and needs to be done. So we can trust him. That's the bottom line today. We no longer trust God. We no longer enforce what God says we should do because we don't really trust God in order to handle it behind the scenes. But we can trust God. Uh, my concern, more than anything, especially when it comes to capital punishment, as a Christian is a fair and speedy trial, that the, and then a Christian clergy member being offered to make the gospel clear and, uh, uh, to him. And, and, of course, a call for repentance for whatever has been done. If God so wills, if God so wills, he will open that heart. Just as he did with Lydia, who I reference all the time. Lydia, Acts chapter 16. God can open the heart if He so wills. What God asks us to do is to obey what He says. Capital punishment is not murder. That that is God's justice. God, God will not mess it up. We will, if we fail, continue to fail obeying Him. Second, uh, justified self-defense is not murder. Justifiable self-defense is not murder. Christians are permitted to defend their home and their families. This is called into question today as well. Do we have the right to defend our families? 
If circumstances pertain to religious persecution like we saw earlier with Paul, he's being persecuted for his witness to Christ, I will peaceably forfeit myself and my life if accused of speaking truths about Christ and his gospel. I have no fear of that. I will not, however, peaceably surrender to a home invader. That's not going to happen. I'm going to defend my home. I'm going to defend my wife. That madman that you encounter uh, when he shoots up a concert, he's not persecuting your religious beliefs. That is categorically different. Someone invading your home, wanting to to do things to your family, he's not there to to persecute your religious beliefs. He's there to, to try and get some money or whatever he wants to get. That's not religious persecution. Uh, That doesn't count as dying for the gospel. Categorically different. That's just dying, folks. Instead, we have a duty, and I would suggest responsibility, to defend ourselves and others who can't defend themselves. When it comes to self-defense, you know, people too often cite Jesus right right at his final arrest. And uh, Peter there cuts off, the ear of one of the one of the people in the mob that's arresting Jesus, and uh, we're told that those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. So Jesus said to Peter, "Put the sword in its sword in its sheath. The cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it?" John eighteen verse eleven. See, Peter was again attempting to interfere with Jesus' path to the cross. We saw that in in. Uh, Matthew 16, and uh, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Again, at his arrest, Jesus is trying to interfere with the arrest, uh, or Peter's attempting to interfere with the arrest of, uh, arrest of Jesus. Excuse me. We recognize evangelism in God's kingdom will never be advanced by the sword. You know, the crusaders, they got that entirely wrong. Kingdom isn't advanced that way. Everyone uh, remembers Jesus' command to Peter to put down the sword, but few people know that Jesus also told Peter and his other disciples to pick up the sword. Did you know that? That's seen seen in Luke 22, verse 35, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his crucifixion. It occurs immediately before his arrest, where Jesus warns his disciples that you had better prepare. You know, they're about to get flushed flushed out into the culture all over the place, flushed out into the world. And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, did you, la- uh, did you lack anything? And they said, No, we didn't lack anything. Remember, we studied that in Luke. He sent out the twelve and then sent out the seventy and provided for them sovereignly. Um, they said, No, nothing, Lord. And Jesus said to them, But now, meaning after the point of the crucifixion and his resurrection, But now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Don't hear that one quoted very often, do you? Jesus was not preparing his disciples for a religious crusade, but normal provisions to navigate in a very dangerous and corrupt world. Self-defense is not murder not murder. It is appropriate under certain situations. Consult your lawyer. That's all I've got to say. But it is justifiable when someone is coming to take your life for other reasons than the gospel. Um, in exercising our First and Second Amendment rights. First Amendment is what? You remember? Who went to school? Freedom of speech is in there, but also the free exercise of religion, Right? First Amendment, the free exercise of religion. What is the Second Amendment? The right to bear arms shall not be infringed. See them both in the Bible. Both are biblical. Both are in our constitutional rights. I'll keep both my God and my guns. Thank you very much. They're God-given rights. Lastly, We're not only to defend our homes, we are to defend our country from any way of life, uh, uh, anyone who would take our way of life from us. Uh, Jesus encountered 
many Roman centurions, many soldiers, never asked any one of them to set aside their uniform, lay down their weapons in order to follow him into some kind of spiritual nirvana. That was never asked of the centurions, the soldiers that he ran into. No, they carry their sword as they follow him to protect uh, those who are innocent, protect those from evildoers. Jesus recognized that government uh, enforces peace upon society. They're good. It's a minister of God for good. Jesus never asks us to be pacifists. You know, that's where a man, where the man on the movie <laughs> Hacksaw Ridge, good movie, but he got it wrong. Was it Desmond Doss? You should rent it. It's a really good movie, Hacksaw Ridge, who would not take up arms to defend his country. His service was admirable in what he did. That's a good movie, but his theological basis was aired big time. He was also a Sabbath keeper, which we learned a few weeks ago. It also can't be found uh, in the way that that he was practicing it. Um, You know, everything you need to know about that movie is, is exaggerated. Significantly exaggerated with some error. Check that out when you get time. Uh, He, if I'm told right, check this out on Google. They always get it right. Um, Desmond Doss, the real guy who saved all those men, the honorable thing that he did, he would not allow them, if I'm told right, to make the movie while he was still alive. As he said, there's too many errors in it. So he was a good man, a good man. Um, After he died, by the way, somebody sold the rights, and they're very rich right now. We fight to preserve our way of life. You know, our our men and women in blue, our military, uh, people in military uniform, they're an extension of God's authority to bear the sword. We respect them. Uh, Our magnificent forces have shifted the balance to win two world wars, folks. Magnificent forces. We have liberated nations. Our military uh, saved the Jews from ruthless anti-Semites. When our military got involved with other countries as well, not just the U.S., but they stood with those countries that stood against uh, terror. Uh, We have stood against the expansion of socialist communism in order to defend our freedoms and our borders of this beautiful land for 250 years. We have the biblical right to do so. Our government is flawed. Seriously flawed, some would say. The only reason... There's one reason the Founding Fathers, as they wrote our Constitution, guaranteed us the right to keep our guns. They did not want a population that would be overrun by the government. Uh, We'll keep the government in check. The Constitution says we shall suppress insurrections and repel foreign invasion. That's what it's there for. Flawed, we have historically corrected. We've even uh, fought justifiable wars for independence our independence and other nations' independence. That is not murder. It's not murder. We experienced a civil war. A civil war when southern states refused to obey the Emancipation Proclamation that was issued by President Lincoln. That that was declaring slaves free in all states. Folks, he did that by executive order. Did you know that? Gerald taught history. He probably knew that. That was an executive order. Um, and he enforced that with the U.S. military on the southern states. It was the right thing to do. Our government engaging in a war to provide freedom to slaves also was not murder. Also was not murder. It was Romans 13 punishing the evildoer um, because unlike freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, the citizens' right to bear arms, owning slaves was not constitutionally protected. Don't have the right to own slaves. We also don't have the right to an abortion. There's no constitutional right to an abortion. Um, probably thought I'd never get to that. This will be very quick. Shouldn't, shouldn't need to spend much time on it with Christians. When Christians get together, there shouldn't be much of a question with this. The evidence is overwhelming. Abortion is murder. No doubt about it. During our scripture reading earlier, we saw a scenario of a man being negligent, striking a pregnant woman, causing death to the child. That's what occurred. He faced capital punishment life for life. That's what God thinks about life in the womb. 
Why does God enforce the death penalty in that case? It's the same reason that he gave Noah. That child in the womb uh, has, has blood in its body. It is a human who bears the image of God. Uh, it is a child from the moment of conception. There is no arguing that. Matthew 1, verse 20, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. This is the Virgin Mary. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Life begins at conception. She will bear you a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Folks, boy, does this country need to be saved from its sins. Last count, 50 or 60 million babies have been killed in this country. There are individuals still hashing out a war that occurred 150 years ago when there's a holocaust occurring in our midst. That's a fact. The verdict was long ago. Scripture affirms a child is created in the image of God. Modern science, sonograms all confirm that as well, what God said all along. What can we do as a country besides repent? Repent, that's it. Have you ever seen the procedure, parts of a procedure of an abortion? Some people won't watch it. Can't stand to look at it. I wonder why. I've seen it. It's horrendous. It is horrendous. As a renowned neurosurgeon Ben Carson said once, if it isn't a human, why are you harvesting organs from it? A southern plantation owner didn't have the right to own other human beings as slaves. A doctor or a woman today does not have the right to an abortion. Whatever you do, don't suggest to a woman that she has that right. Don't, do it. don't let your hand reach out and strike that woman with child. When it comes to America today, I ain't going to say anymore. Folks, when it comes to America, there's only one plea. This has been incredibly hard for me. But there's only one plea, guilty. We are guilty. Let's pray.